0: All right, here we go. Good morning. My name's Mark, and um, here we are gathered together. Uh, Welcome. I think you can see me, and I think you can hear me, and um, I'm going to proceed in confidence that that's actually happening. I want to um, say happy anniversary and happy birthday to a few folks. Uh, Tuesday, anniversaries for Christy and Dave Horton and Stephen and Ruth Doe. Happy anniversary to... uh, All of you, the four of you, and Stephen, thanks for playing the piano this morning. Destin is running projection this morning, the day after his birthday, so Destin, happy birthday. Thunderous applause in the auditorium. Clarice Chi, happy birthday today, and Memorial Day Monday. Brent, and Irina, and Jacob, and Kaya. Kaya in Japan. Happy birthday to all of you. Jacob, I look forward to seeing you, Jacob Supas, later tonight uh, at 5.15. And um, As we get started and the topic of final judgment uh, is in front of us this morning, Uh, the difficult topic of hell comes up in this passage. A couple of resources that I just wanted to mention for you. Uh, There's a fine book called Confronting Christianity. Shout out to Ted Okada. Thanks for uh, getting me going with uh, this book. And there's a chapter in here on how could a loving God send people to hell. I recommend the book uh, generally and the chapter in particular. And then there'll be three other references uh, or resources They'll go out with the email at the end of the service. There's a video by J.D. Greer um, and these two uh, short articles uh, about this topic that I think uh, if, if it's something that you have questions about, struggle with, want to understand God's teaching about this, uh, those will help you. So we're in a series in 2 Thessalonians, standing firm until the Lord returns, standing firm in the midst. Chapter 1 verses 5 through 10.
1: 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 5 to 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Because their testimony to you was believed.
0: Okay, the speaker needs some instructions. Did they just hear the video or not? I need to know. They did. Okay. I'm trusting you just heard 2 Thessalonians 1 5 to 10. And let's pray. Oh God, our Father, you are the God of peace, the God who is over all things and present amongst us. And you are the God who speaks. And I believe it is your design that you bring before this congregation this morning the certainty of the return of your son. And I pray that as we hear these words from this passage of scripture, we would hear in them your voice. And that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to us of the certainty of the return of our Lord Jesus, the end of this age, the beginning of a new creation, and the opportunity and need for us to prepare for that day on this day, to be strengthened in our faith on this day by the certainty of that day. Help us and meet us now, I pray. Amen. Amen. So we're in the middle, obviously, of a crisis that's greatly affecting our services, affecting obviously this service and every aspect of our lives, what if you knew a year ago, what if the world knew a year ago that COVID-19 was coming, this virus was going to be circulating the, circling the globe, what difference might that have made to know a year ago that this was all happening? Well, certainly it would have resulted in, we hope, lots of preparation, Right? Masks and protective gear, especially for health workers, businesses could have begun preparing, governments could have begun preparing and so on. You you prepare when something like that's happening. What about now? We're talking about reopening. Maybe you're getting ready to start thinking about having people into your home again. What's that gonna look like? Are you how are you gonna prepare? You're gonna do the dishes, right? And we're gonna clean things up and we're gonna disinfect and do all the things that we need to do because we plan ahead. We prepare for what we know is. Coming. Now, I want to ask the question this morning, what are the big events in your life that you're preparing for right now? People have been thinking about weddings and about graduations and things like that. But there is one event coming that dwarfs every other future event, and that is this. The greatest future event of all time will be the return of Jesus Christ. The day when he comes back in person to set up his kingdom. And create a new heaven and a new earth. We don't know when that day will be, but he tells us that he will come back. Here's my question. Here is, I think, the the burden for this message How does that day influence how we live today? Do you think about the Lord's return? Can you picture it? Does it influence? how you pray, what you do with your money, how you plan, where you live, what you do with your time, all these things. Today we see in 2 Thessalonians 1 a church that's being persecuted. They are under real pressure. Christians throughout history have been under this kind of pressure. Christians around the world are under this kind of pressure today. And it's difficult. It's hard. It raises questions for us, doesn't it? Where is God? Why doesn't he do something? How can God be just and life be so unfair? Now, you cannot unravel the reality of injustice in the world and the suffering of Christians and the widespread suffering of people around the world in many ways without remembering Christ's return. You have to have that to put this together. Christian experience is intended to be shaped by Christ's resurrection of which we've sung so much this morning and also by the certainty of his return which we recounted in the Apostles' Creed this morning. Your experience today as Christians is intended to be shaped by that day because knowing Christ will return strengthens you to live for him today. There's a connection between knowing that he's coming back on that day and how you live and living standing firm for him today. So the question for us this morning is this, how can we fix this in our minds, the certainty of Christ's return? The world that we live in does not help us with this. Your boss, your planning sessions, the cable news networks that, that that you watch, the the entertainment that you take, and people do not remind us. And hey, by the way, don't forget Jesus is coming back. Don't forget this age comes to an end. How can we fix this certainty in our minds so that it doesn't slip away or blow away? I want to give you this morning four realities, four living truths that I hope can be like, like pegs that will hold down a tent to keep it from blowing away. We need the certainty of Christ's return to be actively fixed in our minds so that then we can appropriate it to stand fast, to stand firm, to live for Christ today. Realities, four living truths that will help us with that this morning. First is this, the arc of the Christian life is suffering and then glory. He says in verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you have been considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, I want you to understand the story of how they came into this suffering. The writer Paul came to this city in what was then the region of Macedonia in the Roman Empire in about the year A.D. 49 or 50, and he began to preach the gospel. He went into the synagogue. He began to tell people about Jesus. And you can read the story of that in Acts chapter 17. And it says in verse 4 that some of them in the synagogue were persuaded and a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But then it says in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Now that's where... Paul and his team were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they couldn't find them, they dragged. This is a violent moment. This is a mob scene. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. The city authorities were alarmed by this. They heard these things. And as a result of all of this uh, violence and, and, and tumult, Paul was literally, in his words, torn away from this brand new church that he had just helped get started. Think about these new Christians, their pastor, this church planter, Paul, torn away after only a few weeks or a few months. They hardly knew anything. Where is God in that kind of persecution? If God is just, why is life so often unfair? Look at these people. They've they've come to faith in Christ. They've heard the gospel and they've responded. And yet jealous people are inciting a crowd and a mob to go on the attack. Their faith has resulted in suffering. It's the exact opposite of what the prosperity gospel teaches. Prosperity gospel teaches if you have enough faith, you'll be rich and healthy But the New Testament teaches if you have faith in Christ, you often will suffer as a result of that faith. And this happens countless times in history, and it's happening around the world today. Just this last week, I heard the stories of a man named Hassan, a Muslim man who heard the good news about Jesus. He lives in South Asia. He responded with faith in Christ, turned to trust and follow Christ. You know what happened? His family disowned him. The people in his village beat him. They slapped him with sandals to mock and shame him. He had to leave. So you know what he did? He left the village, but he kept talking about Jesus. And he, he led a man named Jumar to faith in Christ. And Jumar had the same kind of experience. And you know what he did? He turned around and talked to other people about Jesus. And he led someone else to Christ. And now there's a little fledgling church. Christians gathered just like these in Thessalonica. This week I heard the story of Leah Sheribu, who is from Nigeria. She, as a teenager in her school, were kidnapped by Boko Haram and taken away. All the others have either died or been released, but she, three birthdays into her captivity, remains a captive. She just turned 16, and she refuses to renounce Christianity in the face of her Islamic captors. They continue to hold her against her will for over, two years. Please pray for Leah. Pray for Hassan and the hundreds and thousands like them around the world. When you look at these people, when you hear these stories, what, what do you see? There's malice. There's evil people cruelly, arrogantly treating Christians. There are innocent believers being tortured or ridiculed or harassed or excluded. Why doesn't God do something? Well, actually, God is doing much. Even in our midst, we have people like Anne Bewalda and Jane Sand and Jordan Lawrence and others who are working within the legal and political systems to advocate for justice for Christians and justice for churches in the here and now. So I encourage you to support them, join them, go into that kind of work yourself if God is leading you to. But despite all efforts, persecution will not and cannot be eradicated yet. And in the midst of it, God wants you to see that He is there and at work. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, the text says. What is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God in the midst of this suffering? Paul looks at this church and he says, Your suffering is a sign that God has made you a part of His kingdom. How is suffering evidence of being a part of His kingdom? How is persecution, affliction for your faith, part of being evidence of of, of being in his kingdom? What kind of a kingdom is this? Well, it's an upside-down kingdom. Following Jesus means following the ark of his life. And the ark of Jesus' life was suffering and then glory. That's the pattern of his life, and that's the teaching of his life. He says in John 12... that to follow him is to be like a grain of wheat, to fall in the ground and die. It's to follow the same path of life that he lived. It involves suffering. Persecution is one kind of suffering. There are wider experiences of suffering as well. He says it's suffering and then glory. We want glory and then glory, don't we? We want our best life now, but that's not how God's kingdom works. Trusting God in the midst of Affliction, counting every trial a joy, is evidence of being a part of his kingdom. Persecution is real. It's horrible. It's also temporary. And God will bring justice to bear on his adversaries. Not all Christians suffer in that way or in the same way. And the reality is... We have an enemy, the devil, who is just as happy to derail Christians through the seductions of prosperity and pleasure as he is through the afflictions of persecution. But when you suffer for following Christ, whatever that might look like, how can you stand firm? Here's the secret weapon. Keep your eye on the day of Christ's return. That's exactly what Paul reminds these people of right here. Here's the second peg that we need to fasten in our minds the certainty of Christ's return. And that is this, there will be an end to this world. There will be an end to this world. When? Not when the sun burns out. Not when there's some catastrophic human-created cataclysm. No, the world ends when God decides it's time for his son to return. Listen to verse 7. He will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, he will be revealed from heaven. Think about that. Made known. And seen. He will come on one particular day. Back in the first letter that Paul wrote to this church, he said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. Nobody's going to miss this moment. It's not a secret return. Cry of command, voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This isn't my idea. This isn't somebody's dream or hope. This is God's predicted future, and God is already in the future. He's there. When Jesus ascended, the disciples were watching him in Acts chapter 1, and the angels who were there said he's going to return in the same way that he left. His return won't be like his coming at Christmas when only a few people knew of it. This arrival, this second appearing, It will be, as our statement of faith says, personal, glorious, and bodily. It will be, as we said this morning in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And if you think the world shut down in these past couple months from this virus, that's nothing compared to the shutdown that will occur when Jesus returns. It will be full stop. No sports, no travel, no business, no weddings, no lunch, nothing. The world as we know it comes to an end and every human being who has ever lived and is alive now will give account to him for our lives. The world will come to an end. Are you ready for that day? We prepare for great events that are coming in the future. Are you prepared? How does the certainty of this event influence how you live today? Jesus is coming, and he's coming bringing judgment to all people. That's the third reality that we must fix in our minds to hold on to the certainty of his return. The final destiny for those who do not serve Christ is eternal destruction. These are not my ideas. These are God's words. We read them already. I will read them again in verse 8. In flaming fire he will come, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. We need to talk about final judgment. We must talk about hell because God has much to say about this. But let's be honest, it's a hard topic, isn't it? It's not easy to think about or discuss. And honestly, I find the older I get, the more difficult it is to ponder these things. And we live in a time when for many, the worst thing possible is to be accused of being judgmental or intolerant, of not accepting other people people's favorite verse from the Bible, and they may not know much else, but let him who is without sin throw the first stone. That's one that you hear all the time. Judge not that you be not judged. But we must face the reality of evil in our world and the reality of a just God who will not let evil go unpunished. From Hitler's slaughter of millions, to the enslavement of millions of human beings, to the scamming of the life savings of one elderly person, evil abounds. And it's not just out there, it's also in here. And Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, is also the judge of the whole earth. And he will come to set every wrong right. Justice will be done. It won't be done as quickly as we often hope it will be done. But Jesus comes to judge and to bring rewards and punishment with him. He comes to bring eternal destruction, is the phrase that we get here. To whom? To whom? to those who do not know God. Now, is that fair? How can that be their fault if they don't know God? Well, Romans 1 teaches that God has revealed himself in creation, and we all are without excuse, because even in creation, with the image of God in us, we know enough about God to be able to honor him and thank him as God, and instead, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. The default condition of human beings is to be under God's wrath because of our rebellion against him, and this brings his condemnation. Further, some have even heard the gospel and refused to obey. It says they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that following Jesus involves not only believing in the gospel, but obeying the gospel? It's an obedience of faith, which is why we teach that disciples know, love, and obey Jesus. Obedience is a part of the Christian life. And so we see the clear teaching, Old Testament prophets, Paul, Peter, John, Jesus, there will be a day of the Lord. There will be a day of judgment. The world as we know it will come to an end. And for those who do not serve God, there will be condemnation to destruction for rejecting God. Hell is real. The longing that every person has for justice to be done in one way or another is evidence that we all know right from wrong and are all without excuse before God. And evil is not just sort of out there somewhere. It's inside all of us. I appreciated the quote that uh, Re- Rebecca McLaughlin had in her chapter on this. From, uh, it's quoting Andy Crouch who says, listen to these words. See if they don't ring true for you. If you knew the full condition of my heart, my fantasies and grievances, my anxieties and my darkest solitary thoughts, you would declare me a danger to myself and others. If you really knew my thoughts, my heart, the condition of my heart, my fantasies, grievances, anxieties, darkest thoughts, you would declare me to be a danger to myself and others. That's true for all of us, for every one of us. God's searchlight is coming, and it will fall on every human being. This judgment is final. There's no wiggle room in this passage or others like it for any second chance after this judgment. It's eternal destruction away from God's presence. That eternal destruction lasts as long as eternal life in his presence. There's only one escape Not there and then, but it's here and now. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe the good news that Christ died for sinners like you and me, And if by faith you receive the gift of pardon and forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption through him, then the judgment that you deserve falls on him instead. That's what the cross was all about. It's a substitutionary atonement where he pays for what belongs to us and the righteousness that was credited to him gets transferred to us so that we can be brought into a right and living relationship with God, our maker and holy judge Now become our Holy Father. If you don't know God in that way, I plead with you. I encourage you. I call you this morning. Come to saving faith in Christ. Rescue yourself before it's too late. There is a reality of final judgment and final destruction. And one more truth. There is a reality that when Christ returns, there will not only be eternal destruction and punishment for the wicked, but the pain of suffering for Christ now will be infinitely exceeded by the joy of being with him then. Hear that. The pain of suffering for Christ now will be infinitely exceeded by the joy of being with him then. He's come, he says in verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted. He's coming, it says in verse 10, to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who have believed. What afflicts you now? Maybe you're experiencing the affliction of persecution. Maybe you're experiencing the affliction of life, suffering in a fallen world. Brothers and sisters, relief is coming. I was thinking about Corrie Ten Boom this week, this Dutch Christian who ended up in a prison camp where her sister and father died under Nazi rule. And there was a day when she saw the gates swing open and rescuers come. And she was given relief from that affliction. Relief is coming from everything that afflicts us in this fallen and broken world. Relief is coming from all the causes groaning in your life. Christ will be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who have believed. The punishment that falls on those who don't know God is to be away from his presence. The joy for those who do know God is to be in his presence, he will be glorified in his saints. How? How will he be glorified in that moment of glorification for people like you and me? Will he'll be glorified in what we've become, what his grace and power has accomplished amongst us, how we have lived worthy of the calling that we've received. He will be glorified when he appears and we then we'll be like him and then we'll be with him. We'll be given new glorified bodies, just like Jesus. When Jesus rose on Easter Sunday, that is like the first fruit on a huge fruit tree. And so many more will come to harvest on that day. We'll be given new deathless bodies. Perfect bodies. You'll be everything you were made to be. You'll be like Him. We'll be part of a new creation. Think of a creation with no viruses, no death, no aging, no theft, no addictions, no divorce, no unemployment. Oh, it's going to be great. Unspeakably great. The joy of people who've made much of Christ, who've made him their treasure and counted suffering with him more precious than being rich or popular or powerful, that joy will be fulfilled in having the reward of being with the one they've waited for and honored and longed for. That's what we're waiting for. It's coming back. The world will surely come to an end. We will see him. We will be with him. He will be glorified in us. We will marvel endlessly at him. So here's the question for us today. How does Christ's return affect the way you live today? Whatever's going on right now, I just want to encourage you to give thought to this question. Set aside any distractions right now. Focus on this question. How does Christ's return affect the way you live today? Does it? Is it something that you think about? Is it influencing how you're living? it can have profound and powerful effects upon us. It can give you a divine perspective in the midst of suffering. God is humbling the world in the midst of this COVID crisis. How many are benefiting from that humbling work? An encouraging comment from a guy in our community group, we were talking about how are you doing and what's going on? And he just said, you know, this experience being at home, stay at home, and all, all these changes, things being taken away. And so he just said, it's loosening my grip on this world. And I'm realizing in a new way, this isn't home. I'm looking forward to the life to come. See, meditating on the last day can do those kinds of things for us, can loosen our grip on this day. Knowing that Christ will return can bring stability and peace in the midst of suffering, especially suffering for Christ. It can bring great humility. Do you struggle with pride, arrogance, being criticized? When you know that Christ is returning for you and you will be with him instead of under wrath and destruction, when you remember that that has come about through no virtue of your own, What is left to boast about? Knowing that Christ will return generates passion for lost people, for people to know and obey the gospel. You know, the same guy who wrote about eternal destruction here in Romans 9 says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his people who are not Jewish people who weren't at that time turning with faith to Christ and the numbers that he'd hoped. Unceasing anguish and great sorrow. That's the product of knowing that Christ is coming back. And it spurs us to reach out, to be missional, to love people enough, to share good news with them, to get them to, to get to know them well enough, to find ways to bring that good news into their lives. Knowing Christ will return. Can be an incredible encouragement to one another when we speak about this to one another. Encourage one another with these words from 1 Thessalonians 4:16. We need to do that and we benefit when we remind one another what it's all about. Knowing that Christ will return will free you to take risks in this life. What is there to lose? You have everything to gain, not in this life, it's in the life to come. So why not take risks for gospel advance? Why not take risks financially for the gospel to spread around the world? Why not take risks in travel and travel and, and bringing the gospel to people who don't have access to it? Why not take risks for doing good here and now in this world, bringing justice and beauty and mercy into this world? We know our future is secure. We know what's coming. We know who's in charge. We know how the story ends. But it's so hard to get that in view and keep it in view, isn't it? We must see this day. And God wants us to see this day. Just in my morning reading this morning, I'm preparing to preach from this passage, and I'm reading just in my regular devotions, Isaiah 25. He's talking about this great feast. I'll read from that in a second. 1 John 3, which Vince read at the beginning of the meeting, when he appears, we shall be like him and we shall see him and we will be transformed in that moment. God says repeatedly, uh, speaks repeatedly to us about these things because it's so hard for us to remember. We've never been through, we've never seen it, but we must hang on to this reality. Christ will return. This world is not all there is. Don't give your life to this age. Don't give your life to this world. Give your life to the age to come and to the king who's coming back. I want to just try to give a bit of a picture that really stirred my heart and soul this morning of what that day will look like. It's from the passage I just mentioned in Isaiah 25. It's hard to picture the return of the Lord, isn't it? It's hard to to picture this new age. I'm not going to put the words on the screen. I just want you to listen and hear God's word to us. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined. So what will it be like when Christ returns? It'll be a feast. Wedding feast. What else? Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, all that is part of the curse, this veil, this pall that's over the nations, like smoke hanging over a a fire-engulfed city. He's going to wipe it away swallow it up. And then he says, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That's what's coming. That's worth waiting for, isn't it? Worth living and dying, sacrificing, suffering, praying for. He will swallow up death forever and the reproach of his people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. One more thing. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Can you see it? God knows there are people waiting for him waiting for him to come, waiting for him to swallow up death, waiting for that great feast. And on that day, people like you and me will say, this is our God. This is what we waited for. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I tell you, the pain of waiting for him now will be infinitely exceeded by the joy of being in his presence then. So, let us see that day. Let us fix it in our minds. And let us be a people who prepare well for that day. Let's pray. Oh God how we need you, how we need your word, how we need you to speak to us. We so easily forget that this world isn't all there is. We so easily forget that there is an end coming. God, we thank you for your mercy and your patience to tell us of this over and over and over. Thank you for 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2 Peter 2 and 3 and 1 John 3 and Isaiah 25. Thank you that you know our weaknesses and you know what we must have. Give us, I pray, a fresh and compelling and sustained vision of the reality that Christ will return and this world will come to an end. And on that day, we will say, this is our God. We have have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad. And until that day, God, help us prepare well. Help us be a people of holiness and outreach, a people of suffering with grace and much prayer. Teach us to watch and wait and live for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to just close with a closing prayer from the end of 2 Thessalonians. It's chapter 3 and verse 16. Timely words for the season that we live in. Now may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Let me read that again. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.